I was going to say Mason. There we go. Uh, I said, Mason, I think I'm on because um, I didn't hear it. But um, thank, thanks for the, the, the focus this morning on the holiness of God. Um, I, I hope you all caught that thread throughout the worship this morning. Um, it, was, it was certainly encouraging to me to think through that, especially in light of the topic that we're covering out of Malachi into the New Testament this morning, focusing in on this topic of election. And it's one of those topics that, honestly, uh, a lot of people would say is so controversial. And I, I, would, I would tend to agree with that in one sense, but I think we need to take the controversy out of it and go, how does this, how do the scriptures teach this? And that's really my goal over these last, this last week and this week, is to say, here's the biblical evidence of this. So, um, Mason, I think relating that idea to the holiness of God, that we are not holy, helps frame that for us, in a sense, to remember that the God we serve, we're, we're trying to understand Him, because in our fallibility, in our sinfulness, we do constantly see through a, a veil dimly. Um, I, I do want to introduce, like, we don't do a good enough job of this, um, so I want to take a minute real quickly to, to do this. Mason Taylor is our worship leader. Um, he is now here with his fiance Riley Davy. Um, so again, that's like a week old now, just a week and a day. We, we were talking um, the other day, and I said something about, Riley, you're going to have to change the angle of your ring. It's blinding me. Uh, so having a little fun there. Um, my name is Matt Warren. I'm uh, the lead pastor is my kind of job title, but I'm also one of the elders. Michael Campbell is another elder. Michael, will you just wave? He's kind of in the back center here. Um, I was looking at Danny Taylor. You saw, met him. He's a deacon. Uh, it looks like Don and Rob, our two of our other deacons, are out. Um, let me just quickly also, Rob is a grow group leader. Jeff Randolph, wave at everybody. You're one of our grow group leaders. And then Michael's also another grow group leader. Um, so just uh, kind of introducing you to some leadership. Um, especially if you're a guest with us. There's Danny. I, I, he's back in now. Uh, th th thanks for reentering the, the worship service. So I expect to, now that you're back in, I'm going to check your notes at the end of the service to see how you did. Okay. Um, yeah, but if you're a guest with us, we just hopefully uh, you found us being a warm, friendly body already this morning. Um, but we do need to figure out how to do a better job of introducing ourselves um, because we're a close family, and it's an honor to be part of this church body, to be honest. And so you're going to find that if you stay around here for any length of time, you're going to, I think, find a, a, a body that you feel connected to, uh, that loves you well, will minister to you and serve you, as well as be engaged with you, like what happened to Coldstream this weekend, uh, serving the community. We're, we're starting to take better strides in that COVID interrupted some of those opportunities, but we're revitalizing uh, and seeing those things occur in our church life. So it's exciting. Um, I do want to make a quick commercial. Um, this is not shameless, by the way. Um, if you, uh, Mallory, are you in here? There you are. Did we set up an RSVP for the how to teach the Bible stuff? If not, okay, that's fine. Um, it is an oversight on my part to think through that. But here's what I want to ask. If you're going to be here the next two Wednesdays, not this coming Wednesday, but after that, because this week's spring break, I'm going to be working out of town, um, having just a little retreat, quiet. Um, but uh, next, the next two weeks after that, we're going to have how to teach the Bible well. We need to RSVP for that so we can have enough copies of the notes and those kind of things. Could you do me a favor? Just email matt.warren at thegrove431.com. It's still up, so they could just go put a note in there. Okay. Okay. Okay, does that make sense? If you went and registered for how to uh, study the Bible well or how to read the Bible well, that link, you can just go redo it there too. So you have a couple of options, okay? Um, Gene and I spent a few minutes, oh, probably an hour and a half actually, more than a few minutes, um, reviewing um, together. So that wasn't even the work that went into things before. But we spent a good amount of time laying out what the Lord, uh, we think the Lord wants us to show and teach in that session. And it's going to be, uh, don't take this the wrong way, it's going to be very basic, but it's going to be really, really helpful. Okay, so don't be intimidated by coming to this. Um, and if you didn't do how to read the Bible well, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll hit enough little key principles with some tools and resources that you'll be able to uh, 
build off of uh, those resources and move forward in how to teach the Bible well. And, and I want to emphasize this because I shared this with our uh, students and families that were there this last Wednesday night. Um, we do things with our students. As soon as our students hit fifth grade, they can start serving in ministry areas in our church. And so over the course of time, we've had, like my kids grew up uh, when we were doing VBS, and we're, we'll be praying about how, when to uh, re-engage in those kind of outreach things. But my teenage son and daughter were teaching small group of, of kids in VBS. My daughter, Juliana, right now, she's one of the leaders, she's 17, she teaches um, on children's church morning. She's not just a helper. So those things, we're serious about training our folks, getting, and, and it's not just my kids, there were other kids. I'm just using mine as an example because I have perpetual permission to do that, okay? So you, you, you hear what I'm saying? We want everyone trained to, to uh, minister in our church because you can do that at a very young age and be equipped and ready to serve in those capacities. And especially when it comes to teaching, really the best way to learn how to teach is to start doing it. It's not to sit in your house or in your, your, your sacred space and think about it. Getting up and exercising the, your legs in that is so helpful. So we want to give you those opportunities to stretch your legs, to have successes and some trials and struggles so that you are honed and grow and mature in those things, okay? So know that is our heartbeat about those things. Um, now, the book of Malachi. I am, I am just like giddy over teaching this, so I can be really honest. It, it's, um, and I love the Word of God, obviously, if you've been around here, you know that about me. But the Lord has been doing something both special in me um, and I think just through the, the refreshing of going through this book in a different way than, than what I've done in the past of just simply kind of reading through and thinking through it or praying through it, now teaching and focusing on some things, it's just, it's just connecting some different dots for me, and it's exciting to do that. And so I, I want to do this real quickly, is we're going to read Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 5 again, and we're not going to camp in this text um, like normally I would, I would camp in the text and I would really try to uh, exposit that text and expound from that. But what we're doing is we're connecting a lot of the context to how this text is used in all of Scripture. So last week, if you weren't here, I really want to encourage you to go back to the podcast, which you can find on our website, thegrow431.com, and go and listen to that message. Because it's going to, uh, remember, last week my goal was to do this. I wanted to answer the question of what uh, uh, justifies the strong use of language that Malachi, or the Lord uses through Malachi as he records this prophecy in the text. Remember, he talks about, the Lord says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's not occurred anywhere else in Scripture to this point. So it's like, how, how is the Lord um, right? How do we understand the Lord is right and just in saying that? So we looked at this historical context of what happened from Genesis throughout the Old Testament in key points where the Lord talked about Jacob and Esau. And so we see how the Lord is right in this synopsis conclusion about those things. So let's read the text, and then we're going to look at a couple more thoughts, kind of connecting back to last week, and then we're going to jump forward this morning into the message that I've titled the New Testament connection to, to Malachi. Okay, the New Testament connection to Malachi which is ultimately the doctrine of election, okay? So let's read Malachi 1, verses 2 through 5. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now remember, this device is used throughout Malachi. I talked about that in week one in the introduction. There's this statement, and then the, the reader comes back, or this assessment that the Lord makes up that the, the uh, hearers don't actually agree with his assessment, and so it starts this kind of conversation dialogue. And so, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say... How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever." Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border 
of Israel. Wow. I, I want to quickly remind you that, that Jacob and Esau, and let's, let's Katie, let's um, go to these four points. And, and I want to give this synopsis as we recognize these four points. First of all, we, we need to remember that all of these things are not based upon the character, the quality, their works, or the merit of Jacob or Esau. The Lord determined all these things about them and the nations that were represented in them before they were even born. And, and ultimately, it's actually an eternal purpose. And all of the things that God has done in the lives of Jacob and Esau, he's done because of his good pleasure. And his favor especially and his good pleasure rested upon Jacob for that simple purpose, for that simple reason, because of his favor and pleasure. So let's look at these four points um, that emphasize, I'm jumping way ahead, but I'm going to give them to you anyhow, okay? These four points that, that build off of last week, okay? The Lord's love for Jacob is electing love because he chose Jacob for himself above his brother Esau. Now, now let me say this. Some of you may try to write this down. That's fine. I don't have time to like stop and let you write them all. So if you want these things, grab a, 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 your phone and take a picture of the screen and then you can transfer them later. I know that's a, a big ask, but rather than, because they're going to be a little long, okay? So that's the first point. The second, the Lord's love for Jacob is unconditional love. Because he chose Jacob before he had done anything good or evil. Before he had met any conditions while he was still in Rebekah's womb. That's according to Genesis 25, 24. Number three, the Lord's love for Jacob is sovereign love. Because the, lo the Lord was under no constraint to love Jacob. God was not forced, nor was he co coerced or required by any means to love Instead, he was totally in charge when he set his love upon Jacob. Does that make sense? It's not like Jacob was out and earning this. It's, it's not like he, he had done something that, and God said, oh, I need to respond to that. Now he's worthy of love. It's totally out of the Lord's goodness. So four, number four, the Lord's love for Jacob is free because it is the overflow of infinite grace that can never be bought earned, or negotiated for. And I think that's a huge key when we think about this. We don't negotiate with the Lord for His love. We, we can't do that. It's simply the result of His free overflow of love towards us. Now, with all that said, how do, how do we get those concepts? We need to go back to Malachi chapter 1 verse 2. And so let's look back at that really quickly because I want to emphasize this point as we think back and, and kind of um, review quickly last week's message. The beginning of Malachi's prophecy says, is from the Lord saying this, I have loved you. He's saying that to the nation of Israel. So the whole thing, everything else that's going to occur in and through the book of Malachi is rooted in what? God's love for the people. Folks, I, I want you to hear this above every other thing in one sense that I'm going to say this morning. And what we're going to contemplate is that the love of God it is for us. That everything that He does is rooted in His love for humanity. That's not often what people that are uh, like... Uh, in conflict with the Lord, or they challenge the Lord, or they don't understand the love of the Lord, they're going to assess different things about His love. They will not understand that. But we have to understand, especially as believers, that God is, what does the Scripture say? He is love. It's not just that He acts in love, but that He is love. It's part of His nature and character. And everything about Him is going to be, is operate according to his nature, therefore it's love. So, so rooting that understanding of everything that happens in the nature and character of God is essential. So, so now, when it comes to this idea of the, uh, the doctrine of election, because technically we've not um, like looked at the word election yet. 
from any of the scripture we've looked at. We've just talked about how God has worked and chosen. So we're, we're kind of leaning into this doctrine. And I mentioned a, a little while ago about how this doctrine can often be controversial. But I want to read a quote from you, and then I want to list a couple of names that help us understand that election is a doctrine that we don't need to avoid. But we need to begin to, at some point in our, our faith walk, wrestle with. And begin to understand, especially my hope this morning is to unpack the, the, the biblical qualifications of what election is so that we can say, okay, this is enough truth for me to wrestle rightly with this. So here's an interesting statement by John Stott. He's a famous, a famous English theologian who's, who wrote a bunch during the, the middle of the 20, 20th century. We're in the 21st century now. I'm, my dates start flashing because I'm doing lots of work in the 16th, 17th, 18th century towards dissertation, so forgive me as I pause. But in the 20th century, Stott was very influential. Here's what John Stott says. I think it's great. The doctrine of election is the product of divine revelation, not of human speculation. That is so key, and I 100% agree with that. This is not something that man made up. It's not something that we look at Scripture and we say, oh, this, this, we think this is what it, it's about. This is clearly a biblical principle that we need to get our minds wrapped around at some level. Okay? He continues, it was not invented by Calvin of Geneva or Augustine of Hippo. It, was, it is, above all else, a biblical doctrine no Christian can ignore. I love that. So, he, so here's, let me give you some names now, because he's mentioned two that, that tend to be like the elevated characters around the doctrine, but I want to give you a list of some other names. So Augustine certainly has addressed it. Gregory the Great, who was another early church father, addressed um, election. Bonaventure, Thomas Aquinas, as you're moving into the, the um, pre-Reformation era, they address this. John Calvin Luther, Zwingli, John Knox, Cranmer, and others all address the doctrine of election. And I'm just dropping some names that you probably are familiar with. Here's one. Even James Arminius, who would have argued against Calvin's position on election, he talked at length about election. You have to wrestle with election no matter where you are as a Christian. Even as a non-believer, there's, there's people that wrestle with this stuff. But So, so all that to say... We've got the responsibility to look at the Scripture and begin to understand this. And so why out of Malachi are we trying to connect this dot when it doesn't actually use the language? And I think this is the strength of Malachi. He is a springboard into so many other things that occur, and we're going to see this in the book, and a call and responsibility to, if the Lord loves us, how do we rightly respond? Do you remember some of the things that I covered early in the introductory remarks a couple weeks ago about uh, the, the uh, nature of the, the children of Israel, that they were compromising their worship, they were compromising their relationships, they weren't operating as those who God loved in a manner that was honoring to Him. And so again, I go back to what we sang this morning about God being holy. When God is holy, we need to rightly align with Him. That, that's the call of what Malachi is saying to the people. God is holy. He has loved them in such a way that they need to respond to that love in a surrendered obedience to Him that reflects that love for Him and, and, and reflects that love He has also for them, more importantly. And I think that same responsibility exists for us today. That when we understand the depth and the richness of God's love, that, that we have this responsibility to be obedient, to be different than the world, to, to transform our worship into a, a manner of worship that honors God, to make sure that our earthly relationships are balanced and healthy and right so that the Lord is honored rightly. All of these things are rooted in those things. So, my goal for this morning, and we're going to get into some more scripture, I just want to make this clear, is that we would develop or have a platform for a sound biblical understanding of our God, the object of our faith, 
at how this doctrine is rooted in his love that's expressed towards us that's explained in the doctrine of election. Okay? So, with that, I want to ask this quick self-evaluation question. And it's not going to be an easy one. I'm just going to tell you on the front end. Okay? I want you to think through what we've read in Malachi 1 verses 2 through 5 already this morning. And I want you to kind of put yourselves into the place of the Israelites and think about where you are in your life. And maybe think about some of the frustrations that you have. Maybe where you feel like I've been stretched, that things in, in my faith or, or, or things in life have been rocky and tumultuous. And I want you to think about this. If God says to you, which I think he has in this same sense, I have loved you. What's your response like? Is it like that of the Israelites? Well, how have you loved us? Or how have you loved me? I, I don't feel that. I don't resonate with that. I, is it, so, so I want that self-evaluation for a moment to make sure you like, set yourself in the right heart to receive these things, to relate to the, the same in the same way as the Israelites were relating to God. Because if we do that and we recognize, you know what? There's some doubt in my mind. There's some turmoil and things that have maybe interrupted my understanding of how God's loved me. I certainly need to have that sound understanding so I can course correct, adjust my own thinking, my own attitude, and possibly my own behavior towards the Lord and the things of the Lord. Because if we miss that, like that right orientation, because we just deny that, that we might struggle with understanding the love of the Lord, then, then we miss the whole point of, of this message today. And really the heart of Scripture, which is for us to surrender rightly and align ourselves rightly with who we are in Christ. Not who we are in our own perception, not who we are according to our own value, or desires even, but who we are according to Christ. I hope that makes sense. Okay, I'm seeing some affirmation nods. Good. Okay. So, where do we go now? Well, here's the key. I think we need to connect Malachi and all the historical context with how Malachi is used. I'm doing this the wrong way. Let me go back timeline. I try to do this in my, my brain. It doesn't flip right. So the historical timeline, because you, you start with the left and go right, okay? So all the things in the background of the Old Testament, Genesis, Jeremiah, some of those things, Psalms that we read last week, and the historical context of how the Lord's brought us through the lives of Jacob and Esau and the rebellion and, and, and the, then the, the, the transformations and all those things, how Esau, the father of the Edomites, how the promise is that the Lord is going to destroy the land and destroy the nation, how it continued to rise up and be a thorn in the flesh of the Israelites, but the Lord continued to suppress it and, and eventually give freedom. All that was in the context of last week. We come to Malachi, and we're reading, how does this now propel us into the New Testament? Where is this passage used clearly in the New Testament to connect the dots on this idea of election? So we need to turn to Romans 8 and 9. So take your Bibles and turn to Romans 8 and 9. And I'm going to read like dots of Romans, or just little hit points of Romans 8 to give us some context. And then we're going to look at a larger portion of Romans 9. So hang in there as we do this, okay? So Romans 8, 1 is where we need to start. There is now, or there is therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So up to this point, Paul's been covering, covering a whole lot of doctrinal things that um, address the distinctions between the lost and those who are uh, come to Christ by faith, okay? And, and it's dealing with the old Adam, the new Adam of Jesus, who is the, the federal head uh, along whom we align with. And so he's in Romans 8, and I can't, I wish we could unpack all those things, but that's a whole much lengthier study. But here's my point. Romans 8, Paul clearly says, I'm talking to you believers. As you have wrestled through all these things, 
non-believers, Romans 1, certainly dealing with those that, that deny the, the Lord, um, that, that look for excuses, uh, that want to revel in sin. Once we get to Romans 8, it is clear that he's talking to believers, and he's wanting to encourage people of faith in who they are and how God's working. And so the believer gets to rest and, and understand that, that sin no longer is condemning to us because we're justified by grace through faith according to the work of Jesus Christ. And so there's no condemnation for the believers. Look at verse 28. This is going to be really familiar to you, uh, most likely. Um, we, we read in verse 28, and we're going to read through 31, and we, now, and we know that for those who love God, okay, so there again, this qualifier is for the believer. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, there's that term that we begin to see, according to his purpose. So that's the word eklektos that would be that called out, ek, the ballo, lectos called. So the called out, okay, that's where we get the term election, called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Most scholars and people, pastors alike, will call that the golden chain of salvation. Talk about how God's predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Just a little extra info there. Okay, so we see all of these, honestly, some tough doctrinal things that we're looking to interpret right there in Romans 8, um, uh, 28 through 31. We're going to keep reading. So then, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Again, who is that for? It's for the believer. And we, we recognize God's favor and his love that is extended to the believer because of how God works through his, this golden chain of salvation, part of which is that calling, that election. Look at verse 37. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What is all this rooted in? goes back to Malachi 1, verse 2. God loves us. All of these things, we are more than conquerors because of God's love for us. Let us not lose the Lord's motivation in all these things. Lastly, now, let's look at Romans 9, 1 through 13. Are you all still with me? Okay, good. I got a thumbs up even. Thanks, man. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Here's what's crazy to me as I read this. I'm trying to like live in the life of Paul for just a moment. He's talked about all these highlight things for the believer. We can be confident. We, we are more than conquerors. We don't have to feel condemnation. And then all of a sudden there's this shift. He says, I'm deep in anguish and sorrow. Why is that? Let's keep reading to understand this. He says, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, latch on to that idea, according to the flesh. Paul is thinking about the people of the nation of Israel. All those that have been born in the lineage of Abraham that are physical, his physical descendants, but they're not the true believers. They don't possess a true faith. He's going to describe that. And he's saying, I wish that they could be saved. Okay? So he says, they are in, verse 4, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. All these things belong to them. But, verse 5, to them belong, the, or let's keep going, to them belong the patriarchs. And from the race according to faith is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6, but... It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's talking about the difference between the physical Israel and the spiritual Israel. Not all of the physical Israel belong to the spiritual Israel. The Lord is doing something different. And that's what Paul's anguish and grief and recognition is. It's not all my brothers are going to come to faith. 
the Lord has not called all of them. And it's, it, it hurts his heart. And he says in the, the first part of 9, I'd give mine up for all of them. He, he's almost modeling a, a self-sacrifice that Christ himself has offered. So he's wrestling with his himself. Verse 7, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 9, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who wills. Boom. Malachi 1, right there. All of the context comes to bear right there in verses 11 through 13. So I'm going to go back, and we're going to pick back up at verse 11 through 13 and read that again to highlight this and to catch you back tied into Malachi. And let's carefully think of what Paul and the Holy Spirit inspiring to write this is doing, how it connects to Malachi itself and the historical context. Verse 11, though they were not yet born, that's Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing either good or bad, that's huge. There's nothing that they had done. They were in the womb. They hadn't exercised any kind of obedience or disobedience, honor or rebellion to the Lord. Nothing had occurred in their lives at that point, okay? In order, so here's the purpose, that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She, Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. There's the doctrine of election spelled out distinctly. So what do we need to learn? What do we need to learn about this? First of all, the doctrine of election elevates a truth that mankind is unworthy of God's love. We have done nothing to earn it, to negotiate, to, uh, for him to look at us and say they, they have a right to it. It is simply a result of his pleasure. And I don't think I mentioned this early. If I did, forgive me, I'm going to go back. Because I had a couple people stop me last week and go, Matt, you didn't give a definition of, of election. I'm going to, okay? I'm going to do that the last thing because I think as we go through these things, you'll understand how this definition of election is hopefully biblically sound and helps us grasp a hold of it, okay? So I want to give you these five things that qualify God's uh, electing purpose in election, okay? So here they are. Number one, first, the electing work of God is from before all times eternal. Turn over to your in your Bibles to first. I'm sorry, to Second Timothy, to Second Timothy, chapter one. So it'll be just a little bit towards the back of your Bible from uh, from Romans. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far by a couple of books. First and Second Thessalonians, First Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. There you go. Hopefully that helps a little bit. Okay. So first, I'm sorry, Second Timothy one. 2 Timothy 1.9, listen to this passage where it refers to the time frame and purpose of God's election. It says, uh, well, let's, let's pick a little context up for, from verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, so that's echoing what we read in Paul and Romans. Not because of our works, also Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Because of his own purpose, but because of his own purpose and grace. Which he gave us in Christ, Jesus, before the ages began. 
That's a, a qualifier that we need to recognize, that God's work and purpose in election was established before the ages began. In all of eternity past, it was part of God's will and purpose to work in and through election. I'll be honest, that's hard for me to wrestle through in some ways. But at the same time, what it does is it gives me a deep assurance and confidence of a couple things. One, God's purpose. It's It's been set forth for always. Two, God's love is eternal for us. It establishes confidence for me. That's why I can look back at Romans and what Paul said, and there's no condemnation. I can be confident in these things. I, I, who the Lord has called me to be as a believer, it's a good work, and I trust Him. I may mess up bad on days, and sin may overwhelm me, and my attitude my, may stink, my behavior may be rebellious, and disobedient. Oh, guess what? I'm just like the Israelites. Just like them, honestly. But in all of that, guess what I know? God is faithful. His purpose endures forever from eternity past to glorification, as we read earlier in Romans as as well. And I know that he who began a good work in me is faithful to complete it. Oh, praise the Lord. It is, I just get to cooperate with what he's doing through the power of the Holy Spirit to make me more and more like Christ every day. And all that I have to do is just surrender to that work to be part of it through, yes, certainly discipline, certainly through my willful obedience to Him. It's, but it's a daily surrender to, to who He wants me to be. It's a good, good work. Confidence. I don't, I don't guess what? Y'all, y'all, if you've been around here long enough, you know who's the worst qu- critic of Matt Warren. Matt Warren. Danny Taylor says he might be. You know, I'm, I might could argue a little bit about that, Danny. I, I've known me a lot longer than you have, brother. Okay. Um, guess what? I don't even have to be condemning of myself. I don't have to be trapped in my guilt and shame. I, because of who I am in Christ, I'm a new creature, a new creation. I, I've shared this a bunch recently with some folks. It's a verse that has over time just become more and more precious to me. Revelations 21.5 where the Lord says, behold, I'm making all things new. All things. Matt, that's you too. That's you too. Behold, I'm making all things new. Rest in that truth that God's electing purpose is to make you new in Christ. It's powerful truth. So, so don't let that qualifier be lost. That God's sovereign purposes have been established from all eternity. Mm. Number two, election always relates to Christ in that eternal plan. Whether you read in Ephesians 1, whether you read here in 2 Timothy, whether you read what happened in Romans, all, the, all these things, every time God relates to uh, His eternal purposes to us, it's always through Christ. Now, why is that significant? Because if we think that we can do things apart from thinking through and meditating on and uh, pursuing the, the important fact uh, or our call to abide in Christ, we'll miss out. Folks, every day, part of our focus, meditation, pursuit, what am I doing? Ought to be the answer to this question. What and how am I trying to be in and abide and, and more like Christ in every way, in every way? If we just like set that aside and become apathetic about Christ, we, we miss out on the blessing. And don't think, well, I, that, that's a making a big deal. Folks, the truth is, if we're all honest, Christ isn't at the forefront of our thoughts enough. There's so much white noise in the world that Christ will often get like suppressed. Often it's not intentional, but folks... Having the intentionality about prioritizing Christ is our responsibility. Let me say that again. Having the prioritize uh, or the intentionality to prioritize Christ is our responsibility. If we are not doing that intentionally, we will not feel confident. We will feel condemned by others and by self. 
and we won't really discover what it means to abide in Christ rightly. So when you think about the electing purpose of, Christ, of God, it's always to elevate Christ in our lives. Number three, God's electing purpose is always related to grace. It's always related to grace, which, let me remind you, means that we cannot merit God's favor. That's what is so clear through the teaching of Malachi and Romans. As Paul connects those dots, and, and essentially all the way back to Genesis, looking at Jacob and Esau and the nations that come out of them, we don't do anything in and of ourselves to merit the favor of God. Everything He does with us is according to His grace. And let me say this, His grace and His mercy, it falls on the righteous and the unrighteous as well, just like the rain falls on the unrighteous and righteous. The Lord knows, and He works through specific uh, salvific grace as well as common grace to all of humanity. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to get off. Okay, number four, number four, God's electing purposes never look, or His electing purpose never looks to our works, but it looks at things uh, or happens according to His will. Because it can't be found in anything that we've done. Just like before Jacob and Esau were born, God's grace and favor were upon them. It has to be according to His will. Because if it was done any other way, it would be according to our will, our negotiating with Him. And folks, we're dead in our sin and trespasses according to Ephesians 2. And like the rest of mankind, we are by nature children or objects of wrath. We're not looking at God and going, hey, God, please, I, I want you to change your will. It's according to His sovereign will, always according to His plan. And that's a good thing. Because his will according to, operates according to his nature, which is always to love, it's always to be just, it's always to be right, it's always to be holy. So this electing purpose is always done right. And we can trust that. Number five, God's purpose of election always emphasizes his excellency. Look at 1 Peter 2.9, 1 Peter 2.9. So you go after Hebrews, just to the back of your Bible, just a little, little bit. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.9. We read this. Actually, let's go back and get a little context again. Because I think this will be important for us to see Start, we'll pick up in verse 4, which the, the you is, or I'm sorry, the him in that is referring to Christ, okay? And this will give us this context that's powerful because, again, I want to emphasize while I'm getting the context, it helps us to emphasize what I'm, I said earlier about God's electing purpose being central on Christ. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. One of the qualifiers around the doctrine of election is that God has called us to the purpose of displaying His excellencies, being a testimony of His grace and His mercy and His marvelous love 
for us. Because we who once lived in darkness, like everyone else, have been called to the light. Praise the Lord. I want to finish this. Go back to Romans. We're going to turn to Romans chapter 11, just after chapters 9, obviously, and some following text. But I want to read Romans 11, verses 33 through 36, because I think this helps us see Paul's own heart and perspective as he runs through all of these doctrines. And then what does it ultimately lead him to conclude? So Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? You hear those elements of election in this. We can't contribute anything to God's knowledge, His understanding, His wisdom. We can't give to Him a gift that we ought to be repaid. We can't say, God, look at me. I've done these things, and I'm worthy of being repaid through your, by Your grace. All of those things are nutshelled by Paul in those statements. And look at what he says in verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. I, I end with that thought before I give you the de- definition because I think it helps us to see Paul's own heart as he reviews this whole of, of Scripture in a sense. That he looks back and he ties through the words of Malachi, through his own heart for the people, his own, his own people, the the longing that they would know Christ, but also the knowledge that not every one of them will come to faith because God has a different purpose. And God's electing purpose is still good and right and holy and just and is still always preserved by His character and His nature that is love. And Paul says, in all of these things, I can contribute nothing to God. His mind, his knowledge, his understanding, his ways, they're right and they're inscrutable. His knowledge is really too deep, but I know this. He is worthy of worship. He is worthy of being praised. And to love him and to respond to him in obedience is is my life's goal. You, You get that sense from Paul. And folks, I want to help you with this because I think this definition of election nutshells these things for us to get like a tight handle on that covers a lot of these things. And I want to like issue then a a response or or an application to us this morning. So here's the definition. Established according to the eternal purpose and loving kindness of God, election is a performative act of God by which he effectively calls out of unwor- out unworthy sinners by his grace, which leads to the sinner's justification by faith, which is salvation, resulting in their glorification. So I'm going to read that again, give you a minute to write it down, and I'm going to unpack it just for a second, okay? I'm not going to go into a big, long, lengthy unpacking, but just to highlight a couple things. Election, it's established according to the eternal purpose and loving kindness of God. Y'all hear that through this message. I hope you hear it in overall through all of Scripture. But we can't escape that God it has established these things, His knowledge, His purpose, His plan, His will. All of those things are eternal in Him, according to His nature, according to His own working. And they're good. And when we think about this idea of His loving kindness, there's the reason I chose that word in the definition is, is kind of twofold. The first is this. Out of Malachi, out of everything we read in Romans, out of everything we look at in the historical context, God is love. And everything that He does, He does according to His love. He's always good. He is never not good. 
And then the word kindness, that coupling of those things, is based on this idea that it is God's kindness. It's Romans 2, 4. It says that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. So His loving kindness solicits within people a response to His goodness. Now, election, and here's the key of this, is a performative act of God. It's, it's His acting. It's not ours. It's God alone who does the work of election. And it is co- it's um, qualified by this. He effectively calls out unworthy sinners. Now, we could qualify that word unworthy in a lot of ways. But in that meaning is certainly there's no merit that we have earned. There, the payment for sin is death. All of those are the wages of sin is death. All of those things are kind of packed into that word unworthy. There's nothing that we bring to, to say to God, you ought to do this because I'm, I'm worthy. I, I deserve this. It would be right and fair of you to do this for me because of these kind of things in my life. We are simply unworthy. Truthfully, if we look at our lives just like Jacob and Esau, just like all of humanity in history, we are born as sinners and objects of His wrath. That's what makes us unworthy. Are we as bad as we could be? No, we're not. Because of His grace that guards us against the evilness of our heart or the evil intentions of our heart, we are never capable of being as bad as we could. I I shared this with somebody this week, and I I started to drop it earlier, but I'm going to drop it now. Think about this, even with a guy like Adolf Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer, those people that often people elevate as the, the dregs and worst of society, could they have done worse things? And the answer is yes. God's grace was still intervening and preventing the worst things that it could have occurred. We, we could, like, for just a quick instance, okay, example, there are people that escaped the prisons, the Nazi imprisonment camps. If it had been as bad as it could, all of them would have been annihilated. You, you see my point. God still intervened. His goodness and His grace and His mercy were still being applied in those moments. And we need to remember those things about Him. So, all of us unworthy sinners, uh, are, He effectively calls un, out unworthy sinners by His grace Here's the next key, which leads to the sinner's justification resulting in their glorification. That's clearly reflecting Romans 8, that ver- those verses in 28 and following, that golden chain of salvation, that effectual calling produces these kind of, uh, or, or this process within those that have responded by faith to this message, by grace through faith to this message. So, with that definition, where does that leave us? And I want to offer you two things this morning, or speak to two groups. First, believers. I want to encourage you with this. Take rest. And, and that was my first thought, but I, I want to add another thought that strikes me this morning. Take rest and joy. Take rest and joy in these truth, in these truths. And like Paul. Soak in the grace and the mercy of the Lord, allowing the hope of the doctrine to break forth in praise, in obedience, in worship for His love and His faithfulness and His work in calling you to salvation. Let let it be that foundational stone that, that never is shaken because it's in Christ that transforms all of your life because you ought to be in Christ thanking, praising, resting assured, finding joy in this truth and fleshing that out in joy for who He is to you. I I just can't help but go back. Glorifying God and enjoy Him in everything. What is man's chief end? I'm going to get it right. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him. Okay? Th- that's based and rooted in this great doctrine. It's in others as well, but this is one of those that's central to it. 
Second group, some of you may be here today and you're like, I'm, I'm a sinner. I've never surrendered to Christ. I, I, believe me, I know that. I came to Christ as a 20-year-old. I remember wrestling about some of these things and, and where am I in relationship with the Lord? A am I his child? Am I, am I not? Let me read this because I want to make sure I get this right as my best thoughts. Do not focus on the matter of election. See, I think people that are not believers often hear some of these things and they get tripped up because they want to focus on these things, which is really truth that you get later after you've come, in to, come to Christ and you're resting in Him. It, it's like this is kind of the byproduct. But you may be sitting here today, the Lord's brought you to this church for a reason to hear these things. It's not necessarily to wrestle through the doctrine of election. Here's what it's to wrestle with. Here's what is to, to listen carefully uh, to the Lord about as He's speaking to your heart and mind right now. Focus on the love of God that is offered to every person. That's what we read in John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. So, so the, the question is not, am I elected or not? Don't worry about that stuff. Focus in, how is God revealing His love for me? And if you recognize your sin and your need for Christ as the only means of salvation, can I just encourage you? What he's doing is he's calling you in that work. He, he's expressing his love to you. Respond to that. Confess your sin and your need for Christ. Surrender to his lordship. Say, I'm tired of making a mess of my own life. And don't worry about the doctrine... Carefully just consider the love of God. It's way, in a sense, way more important than, than the mere doctrine itself. You'll discover the, the rest and the, the assurance and the joy and all those things after surrendering to Christ in salvation, for your salvation. So just trust Him. He may say, I don't know how to do that. It's okay. Listen, it's real simple. The Bible says, confess if you, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that truth, you'll be saved. It's simple. But you may say, I, I'm still not sure about that. Listen, it's okay. We would love to take some time to counsel you about those things, to make sure that you understand clearly, that, that you don't have questions or doubts. That's, that's what our church is here for. So you can go to any one of those people that I identified earlier that I had them raise their hands, leaders in the church, find myself or somebody out in the foyer here today. We'd love to take time to talk to you about those things. You don't have to wait. You can simply... My friend Will, it's back on, there we go. My friend Will is so prepared that he had extra batteries sitting for me on the table today. Thanks, Will. Great job. Um, you don't have to wait. You don't have to receive counseling. If you know you need Christ as your Savior, just simply pray that prayer, Lord, I confess my sins. I, I recognize that Jesus died, came as a man sinless, died, was buried, and rose again to pay the penalty for my sin, and I want Him to be my Lord and Savior. I'm surrendering right now to Him. It's that simple. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a minute to pray. Mason's going to lead us in a, a song, and then I have a quick announcement after that, um, and then we'll be concluded. So let's bow together for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of truth, the scriptures that so carefully reveal both who you are and the depth of your love for us, and how you've worked on our behalf, behalf unworthy sinners who bring nothing to you to make us valuable, yet you have loved us with an eternal love. And we say thank you for that love. We rejoice that you have, for us believers, called us. And if someone's here to wrestling today with these truths and needs Christ as their Savior, I pray, Lord, that they would surrender to Jesus today. So, Lord, we simply, in the quietness of the next couple of seconds, want to personally reflect on these truths and what we need to do in response to them as your spirit speaks to us. 
Heavenly Father, your word always amazes me. It's, it's so evident that though there's a variety of writers and different books in the scripture, there is still the one author, the one who inspired these men. And it's the Holy Spirit. And Lord, there's such great continuity in the one book of the canon. We call the canon of scripture the Bible. Lord, let us remember these things. Let them transform us both emotionally, intellectually, and especially in our behavior with you. May we be obedient in our worship. May we reflect your love for us in the priorities of our lives. May we abide in Christ and be more like him every day because these things have transformed us. So now, Father, I pray that as we stand and sing this song and as a reprise of the morning, that, that you would be pleased with our worship and we would revel in the, the grace and mercy of, that you've extended to us through Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.